you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Tonight on The Readout. Everyone I talk to is sick and tired and fed up of being bullied by the left. And the last thing I ever want to see in America is a civil war. Um, no one wants that. At least everyone I know would never want that. But it's going that direction. Everyone you know, huh? Okay, you want a national divorce, Marge? Okay, we're going to indulge your twisted fantasy and just play it out. Spoiler alert, it does not end well for red states. And guess where your state, Georgia, ends up in the custody battle? Plus, Ron DeSantis wants to roll back press freedoms to coddle conservatives. The whole idea is equal parts pathetic and frightening. Namely, anything that makes conservatives feel uncomfortable should be illegal. Things like black history and drag shows. Also tonight, Congresswoman Barbara Lee of California, who just announced her Senate candidacy, joins me on what is shaping up to be quite a clash of Democratic heavyweights. But we begin the readout tonight with the one thing Republicans really hate, the 20th century. From setting back the clock on women's reproductive rights to trying to ban the mere act of learning about black history and the civil rights movement, to their zeal for banning books about anything related to the advancements of the last century. Books by black authors and gay authors and any book questioning their rose-colored view of America's distant past. In fact, it is quite clear why they don't want you to read a book. Because if you did, you'd know how the future they want is a return to the frequently very unpleasant history that they don't want you to learn. For example, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle which exposed the appalling conditions in the meatpacking industry in the early industrial era. The novel portrayed how even children worked in plants processing frequently rotten or contaminated meat, earning pennies per hour for dozens of hours a week. Sinclair's work shocked readers and led to federal food safety laws, one of the pesky 20th century regulations Republicans love to hate. And new child labor laws, the Fair Labor Standards Act, setting limits on the minimum age of employment and restrictions on work conditions and, hazard, and work conditions that are hazardous to safety. Another one of those regulations that they would love to strip away. In Iowa, right now, Republican legislators are trying to pass a bill to allow 14-year-olds to work in potentially hazardous industries like mining, logging, and meatpacking. But the Department of Labor has already shown what that could look like as one of the largest food sanitation companies in the country was illegally putting migrant children to work. 102 children, as young as 13, were working hazardous overnight jobs, cleaning slaughterhouses in eight states. The children were employed by the company Packers Sanitation Services, Inc., which paid a $1.5 million fine. NBC News spoke to a former manager who described the conditions. How did that strike you when you saw someone that young working a job like this? It, it kind of makes you sick. When you walk through the plant, you can't walk through it without getting animal parts on you or blood all over you. 
The Department of Labor also fined restaurants in Cincinnati, Ohio, more than $30,000 for child labor violations. Even as Republicans there are pushing a bill to extend working hours for teenagers with parental permission. Ohio Republicans called on Congress to adopt the same rollbacks at the federal level, because why not return to a world where children are the solution to your labor shortages? But the reality is a future with no regulation is the future that Republicans want. Remember this from Donald Trump? And in history, nobody has gotten rid of so many regulations as the Trump administration. 13 resolutions to eliminate intrusive federal regulations, the most ever signed in our history. For every new federal regulation, two existing regulations must be eliminated. Regulations are killing our country and our jobs. If the opposing party had won the election, you would have had tremendous new rules and regulations put on everything. Well, Trump definitely did do what he said he was going to do when it came to the rail industry, killing an Obama-era rule change that would have required faster brakes on trains carrying flammable materials and ending regular rail safety audits. Today, Trump visited the scene of the disaster that he helped create, visiting the deregulated world called Ohio, where residents of East Palestine are afraid to wash their clothes, drink the water, or shower after the toxic train derailment there. But make no mistake, this fervor for deregulation far precedes Donald Trump. I've always felt the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Well, in the case of East Palestine, Ohio, the government is here to help, as outlined by EPA Administrator Michael Regan. We're not going to leave this community behind. We're, going, we're not going to leave this community to manage this aftermath alone. We are with you. But let me also be crystal clear. Norfolk Southern will pay for cleaning up the mess that they created and the trauma that they inflicted on this community. It was also announced today that Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg will visit East Palestine on Thursday, the same day the National Transportation Safety Board releases a preliminary report on its investigation into the derailment. In the meantime, Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro has made a criminal referral in response to the disaster. And Ohio Governor Mike DeWine also said his state is preparing to take legal action. Joining me now is Robert Reich. Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration and professor of public policy at the University of California, Berkeley. Mr. Reich, it's always good to talk to you. I just want to go through with you because Republicans really do constantly say their goals are tax cuts and deregulation. It's the other half to their tax cut zeal. But this is what the Trump administration did as far as rail deregulation alone. They reversed this Obama air rule. It would have required braking system upgrades for high hazard trains that are hauling flammable liquids. They changed the safety rules to allow for rail transport of highly flammable liquefied natural gas. They ended those regular safety audits, as I mentioned earlier. They suspended a pending rule requiring freight trains to have at least two crew members. They placed a veteran of the chemical industry in charge of the EPA's chemical safety office, where she made industry friendly changes to how the agency studied health risk. And by the way, these are that that is one of just 240 significant deregulatory actions and just 97 significant regulatory ones. It's a ratio of two point five to one. This is the future Republicans want. And now they've got it in Ohio, sir. Uh, well, that's absolutely right, Joy. And th the problem is that big corporations put an, a lot of money into campaigns. Follow the money. Uh, those lobbyists and that money 
are designed to get what tax cuts and regulatory so-called relief. Uh, and it's when you're dealing with health and safety and environmental regulations, you're you're playing with people's lives if you get rid of those. And we see this, whether it's a train derailment or it's children who are working in meatpacking plants or wherever you look in America, big corporations who have been relieved, and again, they use this term relief, relieved of these health, safety and environmental regulations and labor regulations actually are exposing the public, consumers and workers to more and more hazards. Uh, this is a direct redistribution of income and wealth uh, from average working people to uh, the biggest investors and the biggest billionaires in America. I mean, this literally happened in Ohio. You know, Mike DeWine, the governor there, received money for his inaugural. Um, he received money and support, but it was a bipartisan effort. I mean, the, the, the Norfolk Southern has been pumping money into the politicians in Ohio to make sure that they are lightly regulated and that they fight against additional federal regulation. This has been the theme. But across, as you said, the Republican Party is constantly saying that if you do more deregulation, it's going to make things cheaper. It's going to be better for the consumer. They, they they tried to make it sound like it's a good deal for the consumer. But I just want to show you the map of where Norfolk Southern goes. Norfolk Southern is not just carrying chemical hazardous chemicals to Ohio. They are all the way down to Florida, which is already an ecological disaster in terms of the climate crisis. This stuff could derail anywhere. And what Republicans are saying is, no, you don't want the federal government to regulate it. They just need to come in and fix it after the, the, the chemicals are already in the water. Well, it's a form, Joy, of trickle-down economics. I mean, basically, they're saying, let companies make as much money as possible, let billionaires who are investing in these companies make huge amounts of money, and eventually the benefits will trickle down to everybody else. The reality is the benefits don't trickle down to everybody else. If you deregulate, if you get rid of health, safety, labor, and environmental regulations, you are exposing more and more people to uh, corporate greed. Uh, look, the, the, one of the things the Republicans love to do is accuse Democrats uh, of being uh, what socialists, of communists, uh, as if the real choice is between socialism and 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 capitalism. No, capitalism uh, requires guardrails. Uh, greed requires some constraints. Regulation uh, for the last 150 years is the way we in this country have said to big corporations, go ahead, make as much money as possible, but protect the public. We ask you, we demand that the public be protected. You know, what's interesting, too, is that, you know, during Republican administrations, you see things like the EPA administrators from the chemical industry. You know, each of these agencies gets handed over to somebody who came from the industry and they're the ones who are supposedly doing the regulation. So even when they're doing some form of federal regulation, it's the bad guys policing themselves. <laughs> Well, uh, that's right. It's the it's the foxes policing the hen houses, and you can't you just can't do that. Uh, I mean, it, whether whether it comes in the form of big campaign contributions, or it comes in the form of a revolving door in which the company's executives are temporarily try, uh, o overseeing regulations, uh, it, it's the same result, and the result is the public is sacrificed. The public interest is being sacrificed. Is has there ever been a time when a state? alone on its own could handle something like what we've seen in Palestine, Ohio. I mean, in the end, 
this comes down to the federal government is the only one with the wherewithal to actually do the fixing. So now what you're seeing is that the EPA has to come in. The company did some water quality tests. It was a disaster. Everything they've tried to do themselves is a disaster. It, it, it does feel like the federal government actually has a purpose as much as Republicans seem to despise it. Yes. And when Ronald Reagan said uh, 40 years ago, uh, you know, the, the government is your enemy, uh, you know, don't trust the government. Uh, unfortunately, that view seeped into American consciousness to the point where uh, we, we don't really feel that the government is on our side. Uh, and every time Republicans in particular, not, I'm not blaming, you know, the Democrats share some of this blame. But every time in particular Republicans are in control, they justify that distrust of government because they do such a bad job protecting the public. Uh, that's why we've got to get into this vicious cycle, reverse the vicious cycle uh, and make sure that the private sector is working for America is making us better off, not just the top executives, not just the biggest shareholders, but all of us, whether we are buying products, whether we are in the communities where these products are being created, uh, whether we are consumers uh, or, or workers, it yeah. doesn't matter. We all need some degree of protection. Yeah. And I think voters have to be a little bit smarter, too. Remember, when you are voting for someone, you're not voting for a friend or somebody to, you know, do sort of memes for you. You're voting for an emergency manager. <laughs> and in, in most cases, that is the thing that you want government to do is to manage emergencies. Think about which party actually thinks government can do that. And think about who you're voting for. Uh, Robert Reich, thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Uh, coming up next on The Readout, Marjorie Taylor Greene fleshes out her plan for a so-called national divorce. And I'm going to go on a limb here and say she really didn't think this one all the way through. <laughs> I'll explain after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Well, Marjorie Taylor Greene is still in our lives and providing her unique brand of national embarrassment and tomfoolery. But things are different now. She is part of the House majority and a member of the Homeland Security Committee's majority, a member who wants to split the homeland apart. The last thing I ever want to see in America is a civil war. Um, no one wants that. At least everyone I know would never want that. But it's going that direction and we have to do something about it. Well, those comments doubled down on her call for secession, made on President's Day, no less, when she tweeted, quote, we need a national divorce. We need to separate by red states and blue states and shrink the federal government. She added, everyone I talk to says this, from the sick and disgusting woke culture issues shoved down our throats to the Democrats' traitorous America-last policies, we are done. 
Not the risk of taking Marge seriously, which is always a potential intellectual hazard. Let's just play this out for just a hot minute, shall we? First of all, the last time Southerners like Marge proposed a national divorce, it was because they were holding four million African-Americans hostage as slaves, and they didn't want to let them go. Today, roughly half of African-Americans still live in the 11 Southern states that comprise the Confederacy. And so if this national divorce happens, they would be trapped in an apartheid hellscape of a new country with zero health care, crappy public schools, barely a right to vote, and a full return to ownership by someone else of their bodies. Except this time, it wouldn't just be black women, it would be all women. And their leader would be someone like the gal who said, quote, if I were black people today and I walked by one of those statues, you know, the Confederate flag statues, I would be so proud because I would say, look how far I've come in this country. Yeah, man, you're not black. So full return to the status quo pre-13th Amendment. Yeah, that's a no. You're not locking our folks in the rubber room with you, lady. But that doesn't mean America isn't divided because it is deeply so and has been for most of this nation's history. Red America and Blue America are in many ways already two countries. As political strategist Michael Pothorser explains, the United States is more like a federated republic of two nations, Blue Nation and Red Nation. It's a geographic and historical reality. That divide, he writes, is very similar, both geographically and culturally, to the divides between the Union and the Confederacy. But here's where things get interesting. Being a pro-Confederate red state isn't just bad for the soul. It's also bad for the economy. Based off Podhorser's analysis, the Blue Nation contributes more of the total U.S. gross national product, 46% versus 40%. On its own, the Blue Nation would be the world's second largest economy, trailing only China. The Red Nation would rank third. And if there was a national divorce, what would Red America do for industry? given that many of its economies are dependent on blue state manufacturers who utilize red state non-union labor to manufacture their goods more cheaply. I mean, if Red America was merely a competitor to other low-wage manufacturing countries, they'd have to continually reduce wages in order to compete. And based on the way individual red state economies like Mississippi, Kentucky, and West Virginia operate now, they would be a nation of largely impoverished workers ruled by a small oligarchy of the very, very rich, with no health care, scant voting rights, and no autonomy for women. They'd likely be largely dependent on oil and natural gas revenues, which are in diminishing supply. And that would mean they'd also be an ecological disaster, which would mean they'd probably need lots and lots of national aid from Blue America. As evidence, currently, most red states pay less into the federal tax coffers than they take out. So uh, would the new Red Republic expect the blue states to pay alimony and child support in this national divorce? Just a few reasons why the whole idea is implausible. Another one, we're actually not divided by states. And I will explain next. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. 
bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. So the very bad map we see at every presidential election showing huge swaths of red, I mean, it's flawed and a myth because land doesn't vote. People do. The reality is we are a nation not divided by states, but rather by counties. It's one reason Marjorie Taylor Greene calling for secession isn't just inconceivable as well as foolish. It would be disastrous for Republican voting states. An analysis of the 2020 election by the Brookings Institution showed that Biden's winning winning base in 500 counties, just 500 counties, encompassed 71 percent of America's economic activity, while Trump's losing base of 2,500 counties represented just 29 percent of the economy. And that's because blue states tend to be urban and suburban with large populations, while red counties tend to be smaller, more rural and sometimes with more cows and corn stocks than people. Economically, it's not even a fair fight. Joining me now are MSNBC political analysts Matthew Dowd and Cornell Belcher. And Matthew, I want to go to you first. This sort of fetish for secession, I remember Sarah Palin's husband was sort of indulging in it. These, these red state folks keep saying it, but they don't understand the economics of it would really be awful for red states. The states that are the most dependent on the federal government to keep their economies alive are almost all red states. Alaska, Mississippi, Kentucky, West Virginia, Montana, New Mexico, Arizona, Louisiana, Indiana, Alabama. Only New Mexico is a blue state. The least federally dependent states, almost all blue states. Blue states are the donor states. California, Colorado, Massachusetts, you can go on. Illinois, Delaware, New Jersey, et cetera. Why do they keep indulging in this? Uh, Because they don't care about the economic implications of it. I mean, I I think that's fundamental to what they're doing and what they've not done in Washington, D.C. What they care about is the cultural implications of this. That's what they fundamentally care about because they have a singular culture they want to establish. And since they can't do it as the United States as a whole, they want to do it state by state. The other thing, and I was found it peculiar that she used this term divorce in this process. And sometimes, as we know, that in the in a divorce, sometimes the person falls in love with somebody else or another individual and wants out. I think Marjorie Taylor Greene has fallen in love with another country that happens to be Russia in the course mm. of this. And she likes what's going on in Russia far more than what she likes going on here in the United States. She likes Putin's brand of leadership far more than she likes Joe Biden's brand of leadership. And so that's what I think this is fun. It's a cultural, this is not an economic concern of theirs. This is a cultural concern of theirs. And it fundamentally doesn't understand what it means to be in the United States of America, United States of America. They have no concept of what this means in history. And to me, the shots at Fort Sumter that started the Civil War, we're long past that here in this country right now. Because they've jumped already to the place where they want a separate country so they can establish their cultural monotheistic way they want in America. 
But, but I mean, the iron, there are a couple ironies here, Cornell. Number one, they would be ruling a country that would still be substantially black. And, and since we know anti-woke just means anti-black, what would they do with those poor people who'd be stuck there in their world if you really separated it? And number two, by their own definition, their states are takers. They, they claim they don't like the federal government and they don't like takers. Their own states are wholly dependent on the federal government for survival. So by their own metric, they're already the ones who are in the moral wrong. Well, it's well, it's absurd, Joy. And I think what what they would have to do is, quite frankly, what they're already doing in in many of these red states, and that is making it harder and harder for people of color to um, to to vote and to have political power, right? You know, I, I, my my father and my family is from uh, rural North Carolina, and one thing my father and always talked about was growing up is that is that you know in the South, blacks and whites could always get along. Uh, it would just became a problem when blacks wanted power. And I think that is, that continues to be true right now is that you would have to see even more draconian measures uh, to sort of disenfranchise and take away black political power, even more so than 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 you than than you do right now. Uh, but uh, but let's take this out. Let's push this out further is that, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is and, and many of her friends you know, with all res- due respect, they're not even Republicans anymore. They're Confederates. Yeah. You know, I, I you know, I look, went back for the State of the Union. I went back and looked at State of Union speeches by presidents. And even Ronald Reagan talked about the ideal of Republicans and Democrats have to get together to to move a legislation that benefits all of America and put a, put aside partisanship. This is not, not even a party of Ronald Reagan anymore. This is not a, no longer what I could see as a legitimate Republican Party. When you start talking about dividing the country up and breaking the country up, you're 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 a Confederate. You're no longer a Republican. You know what's interesting, though, you know, Matthew, I've been t- my poor team has been, for- been forced to hear about this all day. But I feel like there is what's happening is sort of a coddling of the conservative mind. The conservatives don't have the confidence that their ideas can be sold on the basis of presenting them just as ideas. And so they've decided we can't convince people to do what we want and to live by our religious, particularly religious dictums. So we're going to tell the federal government, enforce it. I don't like this book, ban it. I don't like drag shows, make them illegal. The things that I personally feel uncomfortable with, I don't feel confident that I can convince people to come to my side. So I need the power of the federal government to ban the things that make me uncomfortable. That, that to me, strikes me as a sort of intellectual collapse and a, and a sense of defeat. Well, you know, uh, Joy, I'm really glad you brought this point up because I've been thinking about this a lot, having been, all of us have been observers or in politics for decades in this course of this. I can't remember a time when one political party or the leaders of the political party abandoned persuasion. Yeah. Abandon persuasion as a mode of a mode of leadership. What they've decided is just like you said, they can't persuade a majority of America to move in a certain direction, which is where they want to go, which is my view. And I've said this before is a form of Christian nationalism they want to establish here. So what they do is since they can't persuade and they no longer want to persuade, they go to force. And every single leader that's emerged, Donald Trump, DeSantis, others, it's not an act, an art of persuasion. It's an art of force. And that's where we are. And when you no longer, when you abandon persuasion and you go to force, then democracy 
is is frayed and is broken. And when yeah. when your major political party no longer believes in persuasion. You know, it's it's they're like missionaries they are like religious missionaries who use torture as their form of conversion. Because they actually don't have enough. They're more like crusaders. They're more like the crusaders. Absolutely. And Cornell, that is the one way to turn even more people away. Oh, look, I I think this is when 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 she said that and how and when the when the Republican leadership roundly did not come out and condemn it. I thought, my God, and I hate to think this way, but it's also joy of political opportunity. Because look, there's a, a whole amount of research that that I some some that I've been involved with that shows Americans are actually really concerned about another civil war in this country, and they don't want another civil war in this country. And the vast vast majority of Americans still hold on to the hope that even as divided as we are, there's we have more in common than not, and that we are stronger together. And I like the the ideal of Joe Biden going into reelection as standing. And, and, and by the way, his speech they gave uh, in Eastern Europe, I thought was brilliant because he talked about democracy and he talked about standing up for democracy. And he talked about taking on the autocrats. And if and if this and if this Confederate party that is that is now emerging on the right is going to be the party of, of, of Putin and autocracy and anti-democracy against democracy, they are handing yeah. Joe Biden Republicans an issue. Yeah, absolutely. And I hate to break it to Marge, but her state would be with the union. Has she been to Atlanta yeah. lately? <laughs> Y'all staying in a red state no more, yeah, Mama. She's, she's going to be one of the children. She's going to be one of the children that's divorced, left without a home. Left without a home. Listen, <laughs> Matthew Dowd and Cornell Belter, thank you both very much. Up next, look, okay, I get it. Being a conservative is very, very hard these days. What with all the history books and gender identities and free speech protection just lying around. Well, thank goodness Ron DeSantis is here to protect their delicate little feelings and offer them the ultimate cuddle, the abuse of state power to force everything to go their way. And we're back in a second. So we've been talking during the show about Republicans legislating their feelings. Well, in Florida, they have taken it to a whole new level uh, with what can only be described as the extreme coddling of the conservative mind. Already, the not-so-free state of Florida under the governance of Ron DeSantis has been banning books that make conservatives feel uncomfortable. It's to the point that teachers could potentially go to jail for sharing contraband books, like books about Rosa Parks or Roberto Clemente. In fact, one full-time substitute teacher was abruptly fired after posting a video showing the empty bookshelves in their classroom. You also have the restrictions in schools over what can be taught about race and gender for fear white children might feel bad when they find out that not all white people in history were heroes and that there were gay people long before RuPaul. And yes, there is the obsession over drag performances that somehow cause irreparable harm to conservatives and their kids, Though they have yet to explain how generations of young minds survive the many Bugs Bunny cartoons where he dresses up as a girl bunny. And now we have the latest example with a, a bill filed this week to make it easier to sue journalists for defamation, something DeSantis was pushing earlier this month. Essentially, it would open up defamation laws so that if a journalist reports on a racist or misogynistic or anti-gay incident, the subject of the reporting can sue the journalist. Of course, that's not how defamation works, but they want it to work that way. 
As Florida's House Minority Leader, Fentrice Driscoll, describes it to me, they are literally trying to make it illegal to make conservatives feel bad in any way. Representative Driscoll joins me now, along with Jessica Levinson, professor of Loyola Law School and an MSNBC columnist. Um, Minority Leader Driscoll, I do want to start with you first. You are the one who alerted me to this. Please describe what this law, you know, this law is being pushed by whom? Is it by the governor? Is it by the legislature? You know, thank you, Joy, for having me. And as I understand it, this is being pushed by the governor, right? Not filed by him, but being pushed by him. And I'll tell you as a lawyer and as an elected official, I was speechless when I read this bill. It does so many things, including creating a presumption of law that anonymous sources are presumed false. We know that anonymous sources are something that's critical to good journalism, especially investigative journalism. And so it's just astonishing to me that they're trying to overturn literally like 250 years of American law when it comes to that. And Jessica Levinson, can you just walk through this? Because normally in a defamation case, there has to be knowing falsity. It has to be, you know, deliberate. Um, But what they're essentially saying here is that if you do a story about somebody who's accused of racism, and it's specifically down to things like racism and anti-LGBT, you can be sued by that person. And all of the presumptions go to the person who's been accused of racism, not to the person who is being accused of libel or defamation. I think you're exactly right to talk about presumptions. And it's interesting, in your last segment, you talked about conservatives wanting to use the federal government to protect them because they couldn't win an argument. And this is basically trying to use state law to protect them against the press. This is an anti-press piece of legislation if it's passed. And when it comes to defamation law, there are kind of two worlds. One is if you're a private figure and you sue for defamation, then it is easier for you to win. And there's good reasons for that because you haven't availed yourself of the public forum and you don't necessarily have the bully pulpit. You can't come on air and clear your name. But when it comes to public figures, what we've said based on the First Amendment is it has got to be harder for them to win defamation cases. And you mentioned that actual malice standard. If you're a public figure and you want to win for defamation, you have to show that you knew the statement was false or that you recklessly disregarded that. That's what protects the press. And this bill would really, as you said, it would undermine those presumptions in favor of the press. And it would really turn the First Amendment protections on their head. I mean, this feels, uh, um, Leader Driscoll, like an attempt by people who want to get away with racism. I I hate to be to be blunt, but that they want to be able to if if a thing is deemed to be racist, they want not anyone to be no one to report on it or to be afraid to report on it. Is that the, the sense that you're getting? You know, I do get the sense that it's trying to shield uh, more conservative viewpoints is, is the, the sense that I'm getting. And I wanted to point out, too, I mean, there's something in the bill that as I read it and understand it and as my team does, that it actually impacts private citizens as well, which says that if you are accused of discrimination based on race, uh, gender or sexual orientation or gender identity, if you're just you're accused of discrimination on one of those four grounds, you are uh, it's presumed to be defamatory per se. And then you can be sued for automatically up to thirty five thousand dollars in statutory uh, fines and fees. And so, you know, it, it's, it's, also, it's journalism, it's public figures, it's also private figures. And I'm concerned that we're living in a world in Florida that's moving towards that, that Orwellian book, 1984, maybe a brave yeah. new world, right? It is, it's very scary because we know that journalism, we know that 
lawsuits are uh, important to exposing the truth about things. And the U.S. Constitution, oh, sorry, says no, the no, truth. No, no, go. Keep a, going. Keep going. Yeah, I mean, the, the Constitution, at least the Florida Constitution, says that truth is a full and complete defense for defamation. And so what are we really doing here? We're contradicting our own constitution. We're contradicting, you know, U.S. law and all in the name of pursuing a political agenda. It just makes no sense. And, and you know, um, the professor, Le- Jessica Levinson, there is an actual defamation case that's going on right now in which this voting machine company is suing Fox News, Dominion is, because they made up things about them that simply were not true. They were not a publicly known entity until they were made famous, infamous by Fox News. That's the classic sort of understanding of defamation. This news organization made up things about them that they were telling them were false and that they could have easily found out were false. That's put that in a bucket. Isn't the First Amendment designed not not to stop that kind of activity, but to stop the government from regulating speech, because this seems to me to be the state government in Florida attempting to quash speech because conservatives don't like it. Well, I think you're exactly right to point out that the First Amendment protects us against the government trying to either force us to speak or silence our speech. When it comes to defamation law, obviously that does give rise to First Amendment concerns because it is the state court system. It is a state court judge saying, no, you can't say that. But as we've discussed, for good reason, because defamatory speech really doesn't promote that broad and robust debate that we want. When back in 1964, when the Supreme Court set the standard that Governor DeSantis and others are frankly trying to undermine, They talked about the need for the press to be able to alert us, the people, to be able to hold our elected representatives accountable. That's why you talk about the press as the fourth estate, the fourth branch. And if they worry, based on this bill, if it becomes legislation, if they worry that they can't use anonymous sources, that they can't report based on certain issues, we all lose and we don't want to have a press particularly local outlets who do not have the money to fund a defense, we don't want them constantly saying, you know what, it's just too expensive. We can't publish it. But that is what they want. They want to silence the press and terrify people into standing up to them. They want no one to stand up to them. Florida State Representative and Minority Leader in the Senate, in the State House, Fentrice Driscoll, thank you very much. And Jessica Levinson, thank you as well. Up next, Congresswoman and newly announced Senate candidate Barbara Lee is here to tell us why she is running to replace Dianne Feinstein. Last week, California's Dianne Feinstein, the oldest and most senior Democrat in the Senate, announced that she would not seek re-election next year. The move clears the way for what many expect to be a costly and extremely competitive race for a seat Feinstein has held for 30 years. Representatives Katie Porter of Orange County and Adam Schiff of Los Angeles have already tossed their hats into the ring. On Tuesday, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who represents Oakland, announced that she, too, would join her colleagues in the race. Lee, who was born in El Paso, where she had to drink from separate water fountains and was forbidden from entering certain theaters, went on to become a fierce advocate for abortion rights and LGBTQ rights. Lee was the only member of Congress to vote against the authorization for the use of military force after 9-11 that gave George W. Bush sweeping anti-terrorism war powers which those of us who opposed the Iraq war said, to which to which we said, here, here. 
And I will note that there has not been a black woman in the United States Senate since Vice President Kamala Harris vacated her seat back in 2021. California's primary is a free-for-all, which means that voters can pick any candidate, regardless of party, and the top two vote-getters advance to the general election. And Congresswoman Barbara Lee joins me now. Congresswoman, thank you so much for being here. Tell me why you jumped into this very crowded race. Hi, Joy. Glad to be with you. Well, first of all, let me just say um, it's important that uh, people understand that I'm running for them. Uh, not myself. I'm running for people who really haven't had a voice in in the Senate uh, for many years. And you mentioned the fact that uh, there have only been two African-American women serving. But let me just clarify one one point. Since 1789, there have been two African-American women running uh, serving for a total of 10 years. Just think of the uh, the loss of of our perspective. The fact that black women live uh, sort of in, in an intersectional manner uh, at the areas of uh, discrimination, racism, gender inequality, uh, LGBTQ discrimination. I mean, all of those issues we bring to the table. And you know what? We fought and we've been successful in beating back as part of the resistance and we fought to get the job done. And so black women deserve a seat at the table not only for our communities, but to lift everyone out up and to make sure that everyone has a seat and to make this country stronger. So, so let's talk about, you know, the, the, it is a, a political race. And so there's going to be a challenge. And there are now three, you know, I would say political heavyweights in this race, yourself included. Um, Adam Schiff, Congressman Adam Schiff, who people really got to know through the impeachment trials and as well um, as the January 6th uh, um, hearings, um, he's running with the endorsement of former Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She's endorsed him. Um, and she, he and Katie Porter have raised a lot of money. Uh, I just I, I asked my producers to pull the amounts. I mean, Adam Schiff has raised $20.6 million. Katie Porter is sitting on about $7.7 million. Uh, you are at a financial deficit at about $54.9,000. How do you overcome those deficits in terms of the support from people like Speaker Pelosi and the money? Well, Joy, first of all, uh, the speaker, like anyone, have have their own uh, rights to decide who they would like to endorse. They have the right to do that. But secondly, it was interesting to see that chart because you know what? Uh, There are many barriers, of course, you know, for uh, black women and women of color to raise money the way that uh, others raise money. But having said that, uh, I have raised money over the years to support our party, to pay the DCCC dues, to help women and women of color, black women, to help candidates who are frontliners and people who are having a difficult time winning their elections. I've raised money and I've contributed to money. And when you understand the the way we're going to run our campaign, I'm going to raise the money to win, but it won't be the way that uh, others raise their money. And I'm asking for small donations, for recurring donations. I'm asking for the public to support me through Barbara Lee for California, that's CA.com. And we're going to win this. And when you look at how Karen Bass won her race, $9 million to $100 million. L.A. County is not the state of California, but believe you me, there are strategies and there are ways that we win races by talking to the voters, sharing my life experiences with the voters and making sure the voters know that I'm with them and that I have a history of working together with my colleagues as a progressive black woman to make sure that I uh, get the job done. And I've gotten the job done on many issues for the community and for the state. 
just one very quick issue. You addressed it in your video, your launch video, um, and you said that those who might question, I mean, the United States Senate, sort of the average age in the United States Senate is, I, I believe it's something like in the 60s or 70s, late 60s. Um, it's a bit younger in the House. Um, your two opponents are not that much younger in terms of Adam Schiff, but uh, Katie Porter is. How do you address the question of people who say the Democratic Party needs to really start looking at a younger generation of candidates? Well, Judd, first of all, I say uh, experience does count. And we're at a moment now where we're dealing with really threats to our democracy, the MAGA Republican extremists. And you need somebody who's going to stand their ground, who has the courage to fight and not back down, and who can bring people together. And when you look at uh, the fact that uh, <laughs> I have experienced, many call me uh, the OG. You know, I've been a progressive all of my life and I know how to get the job done. And so when it comes to age, you know, when does, um, you know, making change ever go out of style? And so I don't accept that. And I'm going to continue to fight for California. I'm going to continue to raise money in this race. We're going to continue to speak directly to the voters like I did during my uh, video. And we intend to go to voters, uh, have them understand that I see them, that I'm going to work for them and I have an experience and they can trust me because all they have to do is look at my record. Congresswoman uh, Barbara Lee, thank you and wishing you uh, best of luck. Thank you. And we do look forward to having Representatives Adam Schiff and Katie Porter on soon as well. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.